the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good evening, and welcome to the Business of Giving. I'm Denver Frederick, and tonight we're going to focus on a single city. My kind of town, Chicago is. My kind of town. Chicago, one of the greatest cities in the world, but also one that has been plagued by gun violence in recent years. And you'll hear from two leaders who are tackling this issue head on. We'll begin with Helene Gale, the president and CEO of the Chicago Community Trust, who discusses how some of these problems got started to begin with. These things didn't happen because of individual behaviors alone. They happened because of policies that really kind of systematically rob people of the opportunity to be part of the economic engine of of this nation. And then you'll hear from the former Secretary of Education, Arnie Duncan. He is now the managing director of Chicago CRED, which stands for Creating Real Economic Destiny. And in order to reduce gun violence in Chicago, it's critical that these crimes get solved. So clear rate is basically the percent of crimes that get solved. And um, I don't have the 2018 numbers, unfortunately, but for 2017, the clear rate for homicides was only 17 percent. Oh, wow. So literally, if you killed someone, you had an 83 percent chance of getting away with murder. Mm-hmm. Um, if you shot someone and didn't kill them, that had maybe a you know, four or five percent clear rate. So you have a you know, 90, 94, 95 percent chance of getting away with shooting someone. But first, the Business of Giving News Digest for Sunday, July 21st. After California passed first-of-its-kind legislation mandating solar panels on all homes built starting in 2020, a new poll finds that people across the country want to see that policy go national. According to board source, nonprofit board members get their highest grades when it comes to understanding the mission and financial oversight. They become underperforming students when it comes to community building, monitoring legislation, increasing board diversity, and fundraising. Some local governments are hoping that once dollar stores are banned, grocery stores will come to food deserts. A charitable foundation has been launched in memory of Disney star Cameron Boyce, who died at age 26 last month. He died in his sleep at his home in California due to a seizure. Boyce was previously diagnosed with epilepsy. After three decades of ever-escalating drug overdose deaths, the tide of fatalities may have finally started to turn. Total drug overdoses in America declined by around 5% last year, the first drop since 1990. And finally, a complete life cycle analysis of the recycling process concludes it currently doesn't make much economic or environmental sense to recycle plastic and glass in much of the developed world. When you factor in all the water used to decontaminate plastic and glass, the immense distances transporting them and the mechanical and chemical processes utilized to transform them into new goods it becomes clear that they're better off in a landfill. And that is the Business of Giving News Digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back to speak with Helene Gale of the Chicago Community Trust right after this. Before you give to charity, go to CharityNavigator.org. Charity Navigator provides free ratings of thousands of America's largest charities, helping you get the most out of your charitable dollar. CharityNavigator.org, your guide to intelligent giving.
If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from the business of giving, you can find them at denverfrederick.wordpress.com. And now back to the show on AM 970, The Answer. A person's career path often starts working with a local organization, then tackling bigger issues on a national stage, and ultimately being an integral part of an international enterprise. But that isn't always the case. For instance, my next guest has had leadership roles at the Center for Disease Control, a U.S. federal agency, the Gates Foundation leading their HIV-AIDS programs, and the International Human Services Organization, CARE. But now... She is turning her attention to helping improve the lives of people in one of America's greatest cities. She is Dr. Helene Gale, the president and CEO of the Chicago Community Trust. Good evening, Dr. Gale, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Thank you. Good to be here. You know, before I get into the Chicago part of your organization, let me ask you about the Community Trust piece, because I know there are some folks out there who are a bit unclear about you know, what they are and where their money comes from and how they work. So fill us in. Great. Well, um, you know, the Chicago Community Trust, um, as many people think because of the name, the trust first, they are confused. Is it a bank? Um, (laughs) But when I say a community foundation, uh, it still is something that a lot of people aren't familiar with. And so a community foundation is this wonderful creation that came about um, just over 100 years ago. And, the, and our foundation is one of the earliest ones that was an opportunity for citizens that were concerned about their communities to pool their resources in an organization that could then distribute those resources to the greatest needs within the community. So we have both an arm that is uh, that focuses on donors and mm-hmm. people who want to be generous um, to their communities, and then also an arm that focuses on where can those resources be used to create the greatest change and meet the greatest needs within a given community. So it's a wonderful opportunity for citizens to aggregate their resources, if you will, um, to make a difference in their own communities. Would it be anything analogous to the concept of a United Way where you collect money and then the people at the trust have an idea of what the needs are in the community and try to leverage that in the most intelligent way to do the most good, or would it be something different than that? It's it's very similar to the United Way. Obviously, United Way has primarily focused on uh, workplace giving. Yep. And um, within the United Way system, people generally designate for a specific organization that they want to fund to. In a community foundation, um, people can give their resources in an unrestricted way so that we put it to use, or they can, um, through donor-advised funds, actually designate where they want their resources to go. So we have a fair amount of latitude to invest in the ways that we think can make the biggest difference um, within communities, but we also um, are able to give uh, resources to organizations that donors designate directly. So there's a bit of the same sort of kind of direct um, designations as as uh, the United Way has, but it's all it's all the same sort of idea. How do you aggregate resources that can then go to serve the greatest needs within a community? Yeah, have impact. Exactly. How many nonprofit grants do you give out? Uh, the number of grants I'd have to think about, but we give out. Um, so we have about three billion dollars under asset mm-hmm. uh, under man- assets under management. Um, we give out uh, around four hundred million dollars every year, and we take in uh, roughly about uh, three hundred fifty four hundred million every year. Yeah. Um, 
in addition to grants, do you get involved in loans or impact investing or any things along those lines? Well, we do now, and mm-hmm. we've started um, giving out loans and other ways besides just grants uh, so that people can, in fact, um, invest in building small businesses or other things that, that loan or equity could be more useful for. So we've really gotten started in this whole area of impact investing. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it gives us a broader range of ways besides just grant funding to actually have long-lasting, sustained impact um, within communities. You know, when I think of a community foundation, I sometimes think of older donors because uh, it's a bit more of a traditional vehicle. How are you doing with the millennials? Well, we're looking at that issue, and, you know, clearly the millennial donors are different. They want to be more involved. They're more uh, directly involved with where they contribute their resources, um, and directly involved in the sense that they want to actually be thought partners. They don't want to just give. Hmm. They also are very interested in this area of impact investing Uh and how do you make loans, how do you help start businesses, how do you think about things and not the traditional nonprofit way. And so we're looking at these different kinds of approaches that will appeal to the next generation of of donors. Um, Because as you said, I think oftentimes we find that the more traditional donor um, is no longer the donor of tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to ask you, if you would, um, Helene, to paint a picture of the city of Chicago, because we have a lot of listeners who aren't uh, familiar with Chicago. I think you got some sports fans who know maybe the Cubs play on the north side and the White Sox <laughs> on the south side. But Chicago is truly a uh, tale of two cities. So if you could just sort of give us a visual map of the city. Yeah, well, you know, I didn't know Chicago very well before I moved there, and it's been wonderful to discover some of the incredible contributions I'd forgotten as a, that Cracker Jacks was created, were created in Chicago. I did not know um, that. <laughs> you know, uh, we all know Sears and Roebuck. Um, and and so many things that Chicago brought us, but I, I I think that in recent years Chicago has been known more for things like um, the issue of, of violence yeah. and other things, and so I think you know um, there there is as you said a real tale of two cities. You know, on one hand, Chicago has one of the most incredibly dynamic um, downtowns ever. It's beautiful uh, with the lakefront and Millennium Park. And, you know, it has some of the um, wealthiest businesses in the world. On the other hand, you can go five, uh, six miles away from downtown and see um, very clear, undervalued, disinvested communities. And that's where a lot of the things that we hear so much about some of the violence and other issues, um, that's where that takes hold. And, and I think more in the south part of the city? Well, it, south and west, west sides yeah. of the city, primarily yeah. um, where where communities of color, black and, and Latinx mm-hmm. communities um, have ended up uh, based on a lot of long-standing issues uh, related to residential segregation and some of the policies, federal policy and other uh, that that uh, then um, ended up being enacted at the local level that led to this uh, extreme segregation and very persistent patterns that have really left communities out of the uh, the economic opportunity. And so it's one of the issues that we're trying to address at, at uh, the Chicago Community Trust, because until you look at um, untangling some of these issues, the issues of violence, uh, poor health, um, lack of access to educational opportunities, they won't be solved until mm-hmm. you solve these root causes of this 
get this widening um, wealth gap that exists in, in Chicago. Yeah. And to underscore that five or ten mile trip from uh, one of the more opulent areas to one of the more low income areas, in Streeterville, uh, which is one of the nicer areas, residents live up to 90. Right, higher than the, than the U.S. average. Yeah, that's right. And in Englewood, which is in one of those areas that you were just speaking about, it's 60. That right. is the largest divide in the United States. Now, I know that just can't be because people who are living in Englewood don't have access to health care. I'm sure it's a part of it. But speak a little bit more as to the whole breadth of issues that create that horrific disparity. Yeah, and it's 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 jaw dropping when is. you think about this. And you know, having spent so much of my life working in developing countries around the world, you know, it's been um, painful and shameful for me to come back to the United States and mm-hmm. see these kinds of glaring inequities that manifest themselves in things like the health disparities. But as you mentioned, this is more than just a lack of access to to health services. And in Chicago, there's several um, institutions. Um, there's a there's there's one particularly on the west side uh, that Rush uh, University Medical System has has um, spearheaded called West Side United that looks at what we call the social determinants of health. Hmm. They looked at this this glaring inequity in health and recognize that if you didn't look at issues like jobs and employment, access to safe nutrition, uh, public safety so that people were able to walk and exercise, edu- access to education, all of these root causes, if you will, that undergird these um, health disparities, improving health access alone was not going to do it. Interesting. And so more and more this issue of the what we call social determinants of health, economics, education, safety, food, et cetera, are the things that people are focusing on more if they want to have an impact on these health disparities. Again, the health disparity is just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Um, It's more of a symptom than actually uh, a cause. Yeah, and along those same lines, disparity in income. Uh, The wealth of white families is 10 times greater than African Americans, 8 times greater than Latina X. And uh, how do you think about a problem of that dimension at the Chicago Community Trust and get your arms around it, uh, get the right mindset in terms of trying to tackle it, uh, develop a strategy to take on something that large. Yeah, well, you know, um, we've actually put as our highest organizational priority working to help close the racial wealth gap. That's great. uh, Because we do believe that unless we tackle that issue, all these other factors, um, which are symptomatic of this this, um, racial wealth gap, you know, are not going to be solved. So it's so core, it's so fundamental, and so w- we said this is going to be our highest priority. And I think, it, it, you know, there's a there's a variety of different ways in which one can approach it. But I think at the um, core to it is the fact that these things didn't happen because of individual behaviors alone. They right. happen because of policies yeah. that really s- kind of systematically rob people of the opportunity to be part of the economic engine of this of this nation. And if you look at a recent um, report came out um, that showed that through the practice of redlining and contract um, housing, uh, contract house buying, mm-hmm. um, which were all um, federally sanctioned policies, that three to four billion dollars of wealth was robbed from the black community in Chicago. Yeah, and it's well documented. Mm-hmm. And so these are public policies. 
And so I think a big piece of it has to be looking at what are the kinds of public policies that it can actually start to um, redress some of these issues. In addition to this, you know, you look at a lot of the communities on the south and the west side in Chicago, and there has been there has been widespread disinvestment in these communities. So there has to be a plan to think about how do we start reinvesting in those communities? How do we give uh, capital access to people who have the entrepreneurial spirit and the ability to start small businesses but don't have access to capital? So we're focusing on, on issues like that. We're also focusing on the issue of debt because, you know, on one hand, you can create wealth, but if it gets taken away by discriminatory practices of fines and fees and other things, uh, predatory lenders that just kind of keep people um, in this downward spiral of debt, you're not going to be able to solve that. So we're, we're looking – That's a great point to tell you the truth. People overlook debt often when they're thinking about this, but that can just paralyze you for the rest of your life. Well, huge. And when you think about um, school debt and so many um, – uh, young people from from backgrounds where they don't have the ability to access the kinds of loans or end up in schools um, where they they get such a loan debt burden don't ever finish because they can't they can't. they can't economically but then they carry this huge debt burden so we're looking at all these issues around you know access ways in which people can accumulate ass- assets. Um, whether that's through entrepreneurship, whether that's through better opportunities for job, but also looking at the debt side and overall thinking about what are both the policies as well as the programs that can make a difference. You know, a great tool in this endeavor, too, um, which, again, I don't think people fully understand, so I hate to ask you to teach us all here this evening, but I will. It's the Earned Income Tax Credit. Speak a little bit about that and how it works. Yeah, and so the uh, without getting too technical, earned um, earned income tax credit is something that we already have. It's a policy that exists that allows um, low and and um, uh, working class families to get a tax credit, if you will, if they fall below a certain um, uh, income level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is something that could be expanded. It's a way of giving working families, and oftentimes, and I've you know talked to many uh, people who get earned um, income tax credits. But you know, these are people who are oftentimes have done everything right. They're they've gotten uh, education. They're working two and three jobs, but they still can't make ends meet. So the earned income tax credit is something that gives a little bit of relief, gives a little bit of a cushion, if you will, to people who are already struggling to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. But it's, as so many of these programs, it's cumbersome. Yes, it's complicated. Um, It's complicated. People who are eligible for it don't even know that they're eligible. (laughs) It comes as a lump sum Mm. at the end of the year. How many of us um, can manage on a lump sum once a year? Give it to me every two weeks, please. That's the way we operate our lives. Exactly. If this was, uh, if the periodicity of it was um, straightened out, if there was a way of, uh, helping with the applications that are very cumbersome. If there's a way of doing outreach to people who are eligible, and also another kind of wonky piece of this is that, you know, people have to constantly be figuring out if I get this, if I take this earned income tax credit, and I do make a little bit more money, do I then get kicked off of that? 
um, just at the time where I'm starting to make a foothold. So we also have to start thinking about, are we penalizing people for the very thing we want them to do, which is to get uh, more economically uh, viable but then we pull the rug out from underneath them. So there's a lot of these things that could inc- improve the earned income tax credit um, system that could give real relief to people who are just starting to get an economic foothold. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about gun violence. You brought that up a moment or two ago. And, you know, for so many of us around the country, when we think of Chicago, we think of the news reports that come to us after a long weekend on how many people were shot. It, it's, it's just a tragic to hear all that. And, you know, the income in- inequity you talk about exists in other cities, too, um, and all these other root causes. Um, but it seems that there's just this level of violence in Chicago, which is significantly greater than, than many of the other uh, major cities around the country. Why do you think that's occurring? Yeah, well, first, um, you know, I, I always have to start by telling people, you know, Chicago is really overall a very safe city. Yeah. And so many friends, when uh, they ask me, you know, uh, do you feel safe to walk down the streets at night? You know, by and large, Chicago is a very safe city. And we know that violence is concentrated in certain neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make it any better um, by any means. But I think it does highlight, again, this notion of the tale of two cities. And where we see violence, we also see concentrated poverty. Um, I think it's difficult to tangle out why, you know, Chicago more than others. But I do think that, you know, when we look at some of the cities that have really um, made a difference, you know, at the end of the day, any problem can be solved if you have the right plan, political will and resources. And if you have a community that comes together and looks at the whole picture, which is partly uh, public safety, the we know that um, police have a role, but are we building a police force that's working with a community mm-hmm. or is it working against the communities? How do how do communities uh, feel like they are being protected? You know, we know that in, in Chicago, there's a huge um, rate of unsolved homicides. You know, if people are are able to feel like they there is no. Um, recourse for communities where they recognize that the violence is a huge problem. They want those homicides solved. Yeah. Somebody wants to know who killed their son or mm-hmm. daughter. So there's there's clearly a policing part of it, but there's a huge part that has to do with how are you putting together a more comprehensive plan that looks at policing, but also looks at economic development, also looks at education. Um, this is not a short-term fix. And without a long-term plan that looks at how do you interrupt violence in immediate sense, but also how are you fixing the sustained problems that led to this, we're not going to be able to get get anywhere. But we know that there are cities that have made a dent. So, it, again, it's back to political will, resources, and a plan. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, at the heart, Chicago has all those things. They really do. It's an incredible city. And I know they did not have an Office of Violent Prevention the way we did in New York and the way L.A. did. So there's some things I think they're going to be able to pick up and try to address. And I know you're part of this Chicago Fund for Safe and Peaceful Communities. Exactly. Which is a pilot a few years ago. And it's going to be going again this summer, right? Right, right. And so we have put out resources through the summer fund that um, allows communities to come up with their own solutions for the summer around how they can deal with what we all know is a, a, 
resurgence of violence during the summer months when um, young people are out in the streets and it's warm. And, and, and so, you know, we know that the summer months, there's always an uptick in violence. And so these resources give communities the ability to come up with some of the own, their own solutions that they think will make a difference. But, you know, again, I, I think, as you point out, there are things that Chicago could could learn from some of the cities like New York and L.A. and others um, where they have had a sustained um, focus on this that could make a big difference. And, you know, I know you have one of one of your other guests who will be speaking, Arnie Duncan, has uh, really done so much in this arena and really starting to pilot how, you know, working with populations mm-hmm. who are at high risk for violence, what are some of the ways you can make a difference? Yeah, yeah. When we think of the Chicago Community Trust, we think of people giving money and we think of grants going out. But I know you look at that organization as being so much more of what you can mean to the community and how you can impact it beyond the money part about talk uh, the money piece of it. Talk a little bit about some of the things you're thinking of doing to make an impact in Chicago. Well, I think, you know, when I look at an institution, it is both the things that it does in a tangible way. As you said, we we um, receive donations and we also make grants to communities. But we're also an institution that is respected. We've been around for hundred, almost 105 years now. Um, it's seen as an organization that has always been um, a fair and honest broker for the community. So I think, you know, in some ways we have the ability to influence um, beyond just our dollars. Mm-hmm. And we're really thinking about how do we use our voice as an institution? How do we help to convene others who are thinking about the same issues that we can? Because I think it's by really developing those kinds of partnerships that we can have the biggest impact. So we, you know, we see our ability to be an influencer, to be a convener, um, to be a thought partner on some of these important issues for the community. And I think, you know, we hope to build some of those aspects even more than we have in the past. That's great. You also look to engage the voices of the community, and often voices don't get that don't get heard uh, quite often. And one of your tools for doing that is something called On the Table. Tell us about it. Yeah, right. Um, it, it's I think it's a, a great program, and I can say that because it started before I got there. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but it's a chance, you know, th- taking this concept that sometimes breaking bread together and having difficult conversations is the way that you can bring people together around issues. And so we started about five years ago, six years ago mm-hmm. now, um, this On the Table Conversations. And every year in May, um, there throughout Chicago, there are thousands of table conversations, mm-hmm. dinner conversations going on where somebody uh, voluntarily is a host, invites people around the table to talk about the issues that matter the most to them um, as citizens of Chicago. And it's a great chance for people to have a conversation and to um, share with people who they may not have talked about, talked to. Um, as much in the past. But this year we did something a little bit different because in the past it's kind of been have a conversation about whatever you want to talk about. Um, And this year we said because we have this opportunity of a new mayor um, and kind of a historic mayor in many ways, one who is very focused on the issues of equity throughout the the uh, throughout the community. Let's have these conversations as a memo to the mayor. And so people throughout the city use that as an opportunity to share with our new mayor what were the things that were top of mind and what did 
what did they want to see from her in her leadership? And so it was a really galvanizing experience for the whole community to come out and share in this day of talking about lifting their voices to actually say what they want to see out of our mayor for the next few years. You know, as I mentioned a little bit in the opening, you were trained as a pediatrician, then you got into public health, and uh, as you look at your career trajectory, I don't think anybody could have planned it, how one thing led to another. Walk us through it a little bit as to how you got uh, to where you're at right now. Yeah, well, um, you were right. Had had I uh, thought uh, 30-some years ago um, when I was finishing my training as a pediatrician that I would end up running a community <laughs> foundation and in between running a global nonprofit and doing global philanthropy and working journey. for the government for 20 years, you know, who would have known? Mm-hmm. But I guess, you know, for me, I think I always had a central core. I went into and, and kind of um, overarching values that led me um, along the way. You know, I went into medicine because I wanted to have a tangible way which I could make a difference. You know, I I grew up at a time in our nation where we were going through incredible uh, social change, whether it was civil rights movement, women's movement, anti-apartheid, all these, you know, kind of big sweeping social changes that really had a real impact on me as I was growing up. And I, you know, grew up with a sense of wanting to make a contribution, give back, and, you know, hopefully have an impact at, at a large scale. So when I went into medicine, I realized that, you know, as a individual, as a, as a clinician, you can really make an impact on individuals' lives. But if you focus on something like public health, you can actually have an impact at a population level. So I went from thinking about individual impact in health to um, more of a population level. But I, you know, the longer I was in public health, both at a national and then global level, you know, started realizing that at the end of the day, as we talked about earlier, a lot of the disparities in health are really more about the underlying social causes Mm -hmm. and economic inequality, um, other uh, systemic ways that marginalize and hold people back. And if you don't focus on some of those root causes, you're not going to be able to impact health either. either. And so that kind of led me to my work at CARE, where we focused on global poverty and all of those root causes of economic education, uh, uh, social stigma, gender inequality, et cetera. Um, And so, you know, I think that how do you keep looking at digging beyond the surface to getting at the root causes has always been at the core of, of my career and my trajectory. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways for me, just like so many people, 2016 election was a real wake up call and not to make this partisan. But I think that what this election, what that election showed is that we had become more and more divided as a country. And I started realizing that, you know, if I looked at my career on the global stage, the United States has always been a beacon for the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. We can't. We can no longer be a beacon for the rest of the world if we're coming apart at the seams. And so it made me feel like I needed to commit myself to making a difference here in the United States and looking and addressing some of the very issues that kind of got me on this path to begin with, uh, issues of inequity, social um, justice, 
race and the role that race plays in America. So, I, you know, I guess in some ways it's full circle, but it's always been about, you know, how do we create a more just, um, equitable world? How do we allow all people to participate in it and be able to realize their full potential? And how do we link the global to the domestic in ways that um, can really make us all a better world? Yeah, and in many ways, it's uh, one of the first opportunities you've had to make a real impact in the community in which you live. And that's exactly. going to be pretty cool. <laughs> it is. It, you know, it's. I get up every morning and, you know, I'm excited because I walk out of my door and feel like, you know, the people I see in the streets, maybe somehow I can have an impact. And in such a city that is such an incredible city that has brought so much to the nation and to the world, I want to be a part of um, making sure that Chicago can achieve its full um, potential. But I also think that it's a city that people look to for leadership. And so I think that if we can get some of these issues right in Chicago, it can have an impact. It can be an example for the rest of the nation and maybe even the rest of the world on what does it take to allow people to all uh, participate equally. And, um, you know, I think it's a task uh, worth uh, focusing on. Well, we're glad you're the one focusing on it. I'll tell you that. Dr. Helene Gale, the Chief Executive Officer and President of the Chicago Community Trust, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. For people listening who would like to learn a little bit more about the trust and the work you're engaged in, tell us about your website and some of the things they'll find on it. So if you go to our website, which is um, cct.org, I think you'll find a lot about the programs, uh, the history of, of the Chicago Community Trust, and a lot of the ways in which we're really trying to bring voice to the communities that we serve. So you'll see a lot about our work within the communities, but we also have a lot of information that is important for donors. So it gives information on how people can contribute to the Chicago Community Trust and its mission. So we want to serve both our donors as well as our community and hopefully be a, a source of information about what's going right in Chicago and how we can all um, join together to make Chicago the city that um, we believe it can be. Well, thanks, Elaine. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Great to be with you again. I'll be back with more of the Business of Giving right after this. Recruit the best talent. Explore the untapped pool of 24 million productive Americans with disabilities. The National Organization on Disability is the leading partner to help companies succeed in disability employment. Learn more at NOD.org. If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from the business of giving, you can find them at denverfrederick.wordpress.com. And now back to the show on AM 970, The Answer. If I were to ask you to think of a major U.S. city that has an epidemic of gun violence, what city would come to mind? For many, it would be Chicago. But what are the reasons for that? And what can be done to see that it is reduced significantly and quickly? For the answer to those questions, it's a pleasure to have with us tonight Arnie Duncan, the Secretary of Education under President Obama, and currently the Managing Director of Chicago CRED, which stands for Creating Real Economic Destiny. Good evening, Arnie, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Good evening, Denver. Thanks so much for having me. Let me begin with the question I posed in the opening. Chicago has more killings and shootings than New York City and Los Angeles combined. What is that? Why is that the case? Well, that, that is the heartbreaking reality. That's the brutal truth. And it's basically um, the, the issue I'm obsessed with trying to help get the city to a better place. That there's a multitude of reasons that we could you know, take the whole show talking about. There's been massive disinvestment uh, in these communities. 
there's been a lack of awareness of how much uh, people can do good work and, and be productive citizens. There's been a lack of commitment to helping people redeem themselves and give them a second chance. Um, but rather than point fingers or lay blame or talk about the history, I'm much more interested in talking about how we take Chicago to a very, very different place. And we started our work, and we can get into it, in 2016, which was a, unfortunately a really low point of, a, to your point, an epidemic, a crisis of, of gun violence. And we saw a 15% reduction in 2017. We saw a 15% reduction in 2018. We're tracking at about a 10% reduction so far halfway through this year. So we're making progress, but we have a long, long way to go until children in our, our communities on the south and west sides can, can grow up safe and free of fear and free of trauma. Yeah. If I can, though, I'd just like to ground the listeners a little bit in terms of the, the problem and the scope and size of the problem. I've heard you, Arnie, talk about clear rate. What is that? Yeah, it, it's, it's a hugely important number. So clear rate is basically the percent of crimes that get solved. And um, I don't have the 2018 numbers, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but for 2017, the clear rate for homicides was only 17%. Oh, wow. So literally, if you kill someone, you had an 83% chance of getting away with murder. Mm-hmm. Um, if you shot someone and didn't kill them, that had maybe a you know, 4 or 5% clear rate. So you have a you know, 90, 94, 95% chance of getting away with shooting someone. And I want to be clear, we work with amazing, amazing individual police officers. Yeah. But at the macro level, trust between the community and the police is basically broken. And our clear rate, most cities are like 50, 60, 70 percent for homicide. So we are so much lower. And um, what it leads to is a sense of lawlessness. And we have many young men who are carrying guns not to shoot other people. We call it plain defense. They're carrying to protect themselves because they don't feel safe. And so it's a, you know over the long haul the police have to the police have to rebuild trust with the community we're trying to help there but the interim we're just trying to give the young men a sense of hope and a reason to put down the guns. Mm-hmm. Well, these young men you're talking about, many of them are between 17 and 24 years of age. I mean, do you have any idea what it would take uh, to move those young men from the illegal economy where many of them are residing right now to the legal economy? Well, that's sort of exactly what we we've, we do and what we've been doing for almost three years now. So we do a number of different things. Um, we help guys with hard and soft skills. Um, we help them with trauma uh, care. We help them with, with therapy. Um, we help with substance abuse. We've had many, many guys get their high school diplomas. We're going to have another graduation ceremony uh, coming up next month. Um, many of you guys write their autobiographies that are really, really powerful wow. and moving and emotional. Um, maybe the most important thing we do is we match guys up with life coaches. We have amazing guys, many of whom have, have you know been through a lot and done some things that have come out the other side and really want to give back and help the community to be restored and to help the community heal and, and thrive. Um, the, the men work with us for you know, generally a, about a, a year, and then we um, spin them off into the legal economy. And we have you know many employers who are hiring at the back end. We have guys, one guy just celebrated recently his, his year anniversary working at Deloitte, which is a conservative accounting firm, which yes, is amazing. Yes. We have guys working in law firms. We have guys working in culinary and hospitality and in manufacturing and construction. And um, these are amazing young men who have been through a lot and want something better for themselves. They want something better for their, their, their children. 
Um, many have always been leaders. They're just leading in a positive direction now. And I say all the time that I really, truly, truly believe this, that the men we work with, um, they are the solution. Mm. They're not the problem. And they're going to lead. They are leading Chicago to a safer place. Um, the police just last week came out with a report that violence is at a four-year four low in Chicago. So the progress is real, but again, um, we have so far to go. And I always, the numbers, I always talk about New York and L.A. and just trying to get, you know, much, much closer to their levels of violence and not be so wildly disproportionately high compared to those other major cities. Yeah, you don't want to be abnormal. You know, you said an interesting uh, thing a moment ago, and that is a lot of these guys are carrying guns, but they're doing so to play defense. Uh, how many active shooters, if I can call them that, are in Chicago? Yeah, no, you're asking all the, you're asking all the right questions. And there's, to your point, and again, it's maybe a little hard for some of your listeners to understand or comprehend, but there, there are far too many people carrying weapons. Mm-hmm. But there are actually not many active shooters. And the police estimate around 1,500. You know, I, I my thought is it's probably a little higher, but, you know, call it 2,000, call it even 3,000. It is not a massive number, Denver. And it's something can, the city of Chicago you know, can do. If we can't wrap our arms around this, and we, we started with 30 young men in September of 2016 with our community partners across the city. We're now working with closer to 500 young men. Um, we are not to a critical mass yet, but if we can get to, from 500 to 1,000 and then 1,000 to 2,000 and maybe a little bit more, I am convinced that we would see a precipitous decline in, in violence. We would see a real, a real tipping point. And so this work is, is hard. It's heartbreaking some days. It's also unbelievably inspiring. But ultimately, I'm really, really hopeful. And we just have to continue to scale. And people say, oh, it's so great you're giving, giving these guys a second chance. And I really actually reject that in the vast majority of cases. I think for, the, for almost all of our guys, we're giving them a first chance. Yeah, I think you're right. Basically, mm-hmm. every structure in their life Previously, the family, their families, the schools, the churches, the nonprofits, um, we all failed them. We weren't present, and they, you know, had some very, very difficult situations, and they made a rational choice at age 12 or 13 or 14 to go, you know, work with the gangs because they were that desperate, and there was no other option. Yeah. All we're, all we're doing is providing a second option for guys now. No one's mandated. No one has to work with us. And we basically have a waiting list of guys everywhere we go in every neighborhood. Um, they are just making another rational choice that they would have loved to have had at an earlier stage in their life. Are a lot of these guys getting tired as this uh, incidence of violence has spiked to the degree that it has? I mean, that's a tough way to make a, a living, if I can call it, it that way. It, and it's probably it, not well, that it, great a living either. It, it, it's not. That's, again, there's so many myths, there's so many stereotypes. So we often start with guys at around you know, $12, $13 an hour once they come through our. We have amazing street outreach teams that, that, that bring guys in and... Um, and for many guys, that's actually a pay increase. And mm-hmm. they're, you're, you really get, they're on the street, they're getting shot at, they're losing friends, the police are chasing them, and they're making peanuts. And that's for me, is from a societal, from a policy standpoint, that breaks my heart that we're so happy to you know, lock people up at you know, $60,000 a year at Cook County Jail. You know, uh, every homicide costs the city $1.4 million, but somehow we're reluctant to pay a guy a, a minimum wage and, you know, pay, you know, provide some wraparound services, some, some trauma care, a life coach. 
you know, just from a financial standpoint, it's so much cheaper, so much more effective. And then you think about just from a from a human, a human, a humanity standpoint, and, and the the lost potential if we don't do this. Um, what we're really trying to demonstrate is this is an amazing investment in our men, in our communities, in our city, and the other way by any measure, simply isn't working. Yeah, yeah. And I hate to be smart about this, but, you know, in doing that, you probably developed some pretty good job skills in terms of selling and distributing. You, you, you and, know, uh, I mean, there is, there are, I mean, there are, again, we have a, many natural-born leaders. Yeah. And, yes, there are things in the street economy, you know, customer service supply chain. Very important. All <laughs> yes. kinds of stuff that for you to be successful there, those skills are transferable. But the biggest thing for me is that for people to understand is how smart these guys are. Yeah how committed they are, how resilient. They've been through things that for you and I and for most of us are just unimaginable. And they are tired of it. And they want something better. And they want something better for their for their own kids. Mm-hmm. And many of them didn't have fathers in their lives. And one of the things that gives me the most joy is watching how attentive they are as, as dads and how hard they're working to, to break those cycles of, of absent fatherhood. And um, they, they want better. They've been through so much. And I say to our employers, I don't want your charity. Don't hire for charity. Hire for great employees. Hire for people who have real heart and a real commitment to doing something better. And, yes, it may be a different different pool of candidates (laughs) than you're used to, but it's in a pool of extraordinary candidates. And our guy um, working at Deloitte, you know, he has made Deloitte better. Mm -hmm. He has made Deloitte better. And... They, yeah, they maybe took a little bit of a risk with us, but they interviewed and interviewed a set of guys, and that was the best fit. And Deloitte, the, their CEO, came back to me a couple of weeks ago and says, I want another guy. You know, yeah. we're ready. And that just is like, it's just music to my ears. And if, again, if a conservative accounting firm is willing to do that, then every other employer, you know, it needs to just step up and think about what can they do to, to help out and be part of the solution. Well, we'll speak a little bit more about that. What has been the response of the business community, both the good and maybe the not so good? Yeah, the business community has been extremely responsive, and I'm very grateful that the challenge, uh, Denver, as we go forward, is as our numbers grow, we need more and more employers to step up. And again, in a place as, as vibrant, you know, economically as Chicago, um, that, that, that needs to be able to happen. And I always wonder, like, when, you know, when there's a shooting, when there's something, they, they put the police chief on TV and sort of say, what are you doing about it? And yes, the police have a role to play, and yes, the police are absolutely struggling, and we, we're, we are clear about that. But I wish they would also ask every CEO, what are you doing about it? Hmm. You know, and we have to all be in this together. And no, you know, this is a complicated problem. It took years to get to this terrible place. It's going to take us some years to dig out. But everybody has to have a piece of this. So getting more employers to step up is hugely important. We're actually starting a social enterprise, a contract manufacturing firm. Hopefully, literally in the next two months, they'll provide another set of jobs. And we just have to... You know, we have to create, you know, continue to create economic opportunity, not just downtown, but in these, de- in these neighborhoods that have had this devastating level of disinvestment and where there isn't, you know, where there aren't job opportunities in the legal and the traditional economy, people are going to find other ways. Yeah. And we have to, again, provide some, some concrete options. And the overwhelming majority of guys, the vast majority of guys would much, much prefer to be doing something positive. I bet. I bet. Uh, you really do address this in a very holistic way, and I want to touch again on those wraparound services. And you certainly, you know, these guys have been through a lot of trauma, and a job is never going to be enough. And I know you do some things around substance abuse and getting the GED, but the thing you mentioned before um, I wanted to pick up on were these life coaches. Uh, speak a little bit about who these guys are. 
Yeah, these the coaches are just extraordinary. We again, first we have a, we have street outreach teams that just do unbelievable work. You know, meeting you know meeting guys where they are, you know, on the blocks in the neighborhoods, on the corners, and talking to them about this and asking them if they want to change, and then bring them in. And um, the, the life coaches, we have a, we have some you know folks with more sort of like traditional social work backgrounds or whatever. But honestly, many of our guys are guys who had been through a lot themselves, and mm-hmm. and at least some of whom have homicides in their backgrounds, and who went away for you know fifteen, twenty, twenty-five years, and um, you know made some mistakes when they were you know young, and have paid you know a, a huge price for it, and they're back. Not so much to redeem themselves, although it's sort of part of it, but to, to break to break these cycles. And what they they are literally saving, our, like literally, I'm not not figured, literally saving our our young guys' lives. Mm-hmm. And what they always say is like experience is the best teacher, but you don't. It doesn't have to be your own experience. Yeah, that's like right. learn <laughs> learn learn from their experiences and the amount of years that they gave up, um, the the amount of freedom they gave up. Like they say, you don't have to do that. You know, there's a there's a better way, and, and just take take from us, mm-hmm. learn from us, take from our experiences, take from our lessons, the good and the bad. Take our wisdom, and and let's let's bypass that chapter. Yeah, <laughs> let's yeah. bypass that heartbreak. Let's let's bypass that repeated trauma. Right. And the impact they're having, not just you know during the day, but at two in the morning when they get a call, it's um it's amazing. And mm-hmm. of all the stuff we do. I would argue that that might be the most that might be the most important piece. Yeah, because coming from some other person, that would be preaching, but coming from those guys, it really is wisdom. They have total credibility. Yeah. They've lived it. Many of our young men don't have fathers. These are father figures. Mm-hmm. You know, not not fathers, but father figures. Yeah. And to see the bonds, to see those connections, to see our our young guys talk about, you know, how much these positive role models mean for, to them and for them. How much they genuinely care. Um, it, it's 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 uh, it's really emotional to be honest. It's very very emotional. It's very moving. Talk a little bit about the cost benefit analysis of a program like this. Certainly on the front end, you have to uh, identify these guys, put them through the program, do the wraparound as you mentioned, get them a job. But boy, yeah. I would imagine on the back end, there's some pretty uh, it, it, big it, savings it, it's to it's society. All upside. Yeah. It's all upside. So again, just repeat: you know, the literal cost of every homicide is about 1.4 million dollars to the city. The the amount of you know business our city loses because of the reputation you talked about. You know, we used to be the city of Michael Jordan. You yep. know, now we're the city of homicides. Mm-hmm. And for those of us that grew up here and where the city gave us everything, it it, it just it breaks your heart. Um, you know, the cost of incarceration is, you know, 55, 60, 65, if not more. And, you know, uh, what we're doing is sort of uh, half of that. <laughs> and, again, that's for a year. And after that, you spin off and you're working at a real job and you're paying taxes and you're a productive citizen. So we're doing this all basically philanthropically. Mm-hmm. Um, we need the city to invest. We need the state to invest. We're working hard. We have a new mayor and a new governor and hoping they will, you know, step in to get to kind of scale we you know we talked about of a couple thousand guys we can't do that all philanthropically. Um, we have been blessed at Chicago Cred to have an amazing partner in Emerson Collective. Tell, tell us a little bit about Lorraine, Emerson Collective. Yeah, Lorraine Powell and the team has just been amazing, amazing partners who are helping to fund our work. They're helping to match other funds that are raised citywide, and just sort of stepping into a, a gap and saying this is a huge need. And so going forward, if we can have a partnership of you know, state resources coming in, 
uh, city resources as well as the continued support of philanthropy and then the and then the jobs from the civic you know community the business community that's the kind of partnership it's easier said than done yeah. and it's everyone taking some risk and moving outside their comfort zones but if we're expecting the police to solve this they can't solve this by themselves and if we are you know if we see the status quo is unacceptable which which i absolutely do um then we have to we have to work hard. And the thing I always say, Denver, is I just want to give our kids our childhood their childhoods back. Mm-hmm. And our kids, you know, I grew up playing basketball all over Chicago, yeah. southwest sides. Kids can't play outside anymore. Um, every I'm in schools all the time. Literally every single. You know, I always ask how many know someone who's been shot. Literally every hand goes up every single time. And then I often ask how many of you know five or ten or fifteen people have been shot. And often a half to a third of the hands are still in the air. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've never visited a little war yeah. zone. I've never been to Iraq or Afghanistan. But our kids on the south and west sides of Chicago are growing up in actual war zones. Mm-hmm. And we've raised, we've raised a generation of children on, on gun violence yeah. and robbed them of their childhoods. So that's, that's all I want to do is give kids their childhoods back, give them a chance to, to dream, to play, to think long term and not just try to survive every single day. Yeah, I heard a, a really sad story along those lines. Maybe it was from you uh, in, in preparing for this or someplace else, but a, a girl said that she would uh, sit at home and watch kids playing on YouTube because she yep, couldn't go and a, play that outside. Was a, that was a seventh grader in uh, North in uh, in Austin that I yeah spent time with her wow. her, her group um, right before school year ended. It was it was devastating, and that's that's again it's important for your readers, your, your, sorry your listeners to understand that's her reality. She can't play outside, so she watches YouTube videos of other kids playing outside. Mm-hmm. It just it, it broke my heart. Yeah. It broke my heart. Yeah. Well, you're in conti- uh, into continuous learning, having been a former Secretary of Education. How have you tweaked uh, the model, Arnie, since you uh, started? Yeah, no, we're learning every single day. I'm making big mistakes every day and <laughs> still making big mistakes. So it's, uh, it's nothing if not humbling. But what I always say is we're working with men, not boys. We are co-creating, co-designing every mm-hmm. single day. And I always, you know, if, if we're helping them, great. And if we're not helping them, then we're wasting their time. And I have no interest in doing that. So we are literally on a, you know, daily, weekly basis, you know, making tweaks, changing things. Big picture, what have we added? We have um, we've built these outreach teams, so she didn't have it first, just to try and get to more guys. And for me, it's not, I love the individual transformation. I love what we're doing to change lives. But we're actually trying to really reduce violence at the, at the neighborhood level. Mm-hmm. You know, there's got to be community violence suppression or reduction. So the outreach teams have been, um, have been fantastic. Thinking about sort of a continuum of, of jobs over time, and for many of our many of our guys have literally sort of never uh, never held a traditional job. So how do you learn those skills? How do you handle conflict? How do we have sort of a, a ladder of opportunity um, before guys are placed sort of full time, uh, you know, for the long haul? And then obviously the social enterprise is honestly our uh, our impatience that we mm-hmm. just need more jobs faster, and so we're just going to start to create our own jobs and do it in the neighborhoods and hopefully demonstrate what's possible. And we'll start with you know ten or fifteen guys, but if it goes well, and that's a big if, and um, but we could get up to you know 150, 200 guys working, and that would be amazing. And I would hope if that works, then other people would follow our lead. So that the learning is constant, the learning is continual. And our best teachers are um, are the men, the young men we're working with. Yeah, working in low-income communities and providing opportunities for young people is something you've been doing pretty much well since you were born. Tell us about your mother and the influence that she had on you. Yeah, we had um, we didn't 
sort of realize it. It was all we knew, but we had this very unique uh, upbringing where we grew up in middle-class Hyde Park, uh, middle-class integrated Hyde Park. My dad was a professor at the University of Chicago for, for 40 years, and my mother in 1961, I was born in 1964, mm-hmm. and my sister and brother after me, started an inner-city tutoring program. And it's just interesting that, that segregation in Chicago, uh, Denver, it was literally less than two miles from our house. Like, we, we would actually walk some days there. Wow. But it was across sort of the invisible barrier of 47th Street, which was between middle-class integrated Hyde Park and all-black, all-poor North Kenwood, Oakland. So she raised all of us there. So we were going to her after-school program long before we ever went to a real school. And it was just this formative experience. We, we all have tried to follow in her footsteps in various ways. Um, she did the work for about 52 years until her oh, health gave out. Unfortunately, she has Alzheimer's now. Mm-hmm. But her her courage, the, the, the difference she made in young people's lives um, was extraordinary. I, I took a year off from college to work with her full time and just try and figure out, was this just a piece of who I was or was this actually who I was yes. <laughs> and decided during that year I didn't quite know how. And, you know, I had no idea the twists and turns my life would take, but that I wanted to 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 continue her work. And what we basically saw all our lives were, were young kids who happened to all be poor, who happened to often have very tough family situations, who lived in a pretty, you know, violent neighborhood, community. But many went on to do extraordinary things because my mother and others were, were in their life and, you know, huge amount of love and high expectations and support. And so I know what's possible when we mm-hmm. give kids a chance. And it's not some theory for me. It's not some academic study. It's just it's a lived experience, right. as you said, from birth. So that's, um, that's both my hope but also my impatience and my frustration is that there's so many you know, kids and now young men that we're not reaching. And that's not their fault. That's our fault. Yeah, that's yeah. our fault. And we got to get to them. We got to get to more. And we got to get to them faster. And we got to be more effective in our support for them. Yeah, this is really in your DNA. Well, let me close with this, Arnie. I know that the epidemic of gun violence in Chicago is more than some big challenge for you to, to see that it's met. It's about individual lives. And each and every one of them has a very personal and distinct story associated with that life. Share one of those stories with us, if you would. Well, I'll tell you, I have so many crazy stories, but I'll, we talked about life coaches. And um, I, I, I said that, you know, our, our life coaches may be the most important piece of, 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 what, we, of what we do. Um, and one of our best life coaches, if not our, the best life coach, is a guy named Billy Moore. Mm-hmm. Um, Billy Moore, 34 years ago, uh, unfortunately and tragically uh, killed one of my friends, uh, uh, basketball player named Ben Wilson, who was not the best basketball player in Chicago, but was the number one player in the country. And I hated Billy Moore. I didn't know him. I hated Billy Moore all my life. Yeah. And met him literally on a peace march a couple years ago. Um, we talked. I had, he spent 20 years uh, locked away. Um, he talked about the incident, talked about what actually happened. Um, I saw his heart. I saw his commitment. And he is doing an unbelievable job as a life coach. So a guy who I hated for 30-plus years is an invaluable member of our team. Um, very tragically, his son was, was shot, was killed 16, mm-hmm. 16 times last summer. And what Billy says is if the young man who killed his son came into his program, he would mentor him and take him under his wing 
and that he can't ask for redemption, he can't ask for forgiveness if he can't also give that. And so these stories, you know, I get chills even thinking about it. And if I lost my son or daughter, I can't say I would, you know, be able to to show that kind of forgiveness. But that's the world we live in, and the Billy Moores of the world are going to uh, are going to lead us where we need to go. Yeah, that's an incredible story to end on. Well, Arnie Duncan, the former Secretary of Education and Managing Director of Chicago Cred, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. For those who want to learn more about the organization and your program, tell us about your website and the info you have there. Yeah, just oh, we're just Chicago Cred, C-R-E-D. It stands for Creating Real Economic Destiny, and would welcome people to or, uh, check out our website. We're actually redoing it and upgrading it, but you can see what we have now, and it'll be it'll be better soon. And um, just appreciate the opportunity to to let your audience know um, again just the, the heart and the humanity of the young men that we're working with. Well, thanks, Arnie. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. All right, have a good evening. Take care now. And that is this week's show. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And do come back next Sunday evening for the business of giving. The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of the business of giving. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.